This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Welcome to this episode of the MDT. My name is Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician down in Surrey. And I'm Joe Preston and I'm a consultant in London. And this week we're going to talk about Parkinson's disease. We are indeed. Yeah. Now we're not going to go into too much detail for the Parkinson's here. It's going to be a nice introduction as to how it might present and some of the common treatments and managements for it. A, because it's a very big topic and so we just want to give you an introduction, but also because we're planning to do a mini-series on Parkinson's, which would be five short episodes going into it in lots more detail. And there are some other mini-series that are coming out soon, so watch out for those. One is end-of-life care. Again, five 30-minute episodes by one of our clinical fellows, Isma Faruqi, and another on stroke, the stroke pathway um, by our clinical fellow, Happy Moffat, and that one will be aimed at patients. You can share it with them. Yeah, and there'll be a tweet chat after this episode. So the details and timings of that mm-hmm. will be visible on Twitter. And if you follow us, that's at MDT underscore podcast. And we will pin the uh, times of that to the Twitter feed so you can find that nice and easily. Yes. But first, but first, social media this week, Joe. Yes. What do you have? What have you spotted? What do you want to talk about? I've seen a really nice infographic. So I know that we make infographics for each of these shows, but I found a nice one on called Quietly Delirious, which was by the BMJ. Oh, I thought this was the BMJ one. Yeah. yeah. Very colourful. Yeah, very it's green. really colourful, yes. really nice. It's a bit of a flowchart more than infographic, but it was really nice. So it talked about delirium, how you might recognise it at the top. So saying this is disturbance in attention, in awareness and in other deficits like memory, language, perception or visuospatial, and it's an acute change. Looking for a cause, no better explanation. And then it's very clear that in a kind of nice bright pink, there's a hyperactive delirium and what that looks like. And then a kind of blue, cooler, kind of hypoactive delirium. And then a kind of mixed motor type in the, in the middle. And then talks about the adverse consequences. The idea being it's something that everyone in the team can look and see and, and understand. So that's really nice. I'd suggest um, going and have a look at that. There's a link on it, which is bmj.co forward slash delirium. Yep. There isn't a dot .uk there. I didn't just miss it out. And there's some excellent, also some excellent resources on a similar line from the Scottish Delirium Association. Yes. Think with delirium. the acronym of TIME. Yes. Yeah, so T for triggers, I for investigations, M for management, and E for engaging relatives. And you should be able to complete the TIME bundle in a couple of hours. Yeah. Diagnosis. We've just got this printed on some... Really? Ah, I've just rolled that out. Our... At my hospital as well. Yeah. Yeah. So my thing is about... An article that is from 2014 in the Journal of Pain and Symptom Management. Okay. But I thought it was interesting, and I got it from Edward Brera, whose Twitter is at edubrew, which was quite cool. (laughs) And he's a palliative care physician from Houston in Texas. And this is... Yeehaw. And this is a study. It was a prospective, longitudinal, observational study looking at a couple of palliative care units and the documentation of vital signs um, which were done twice daily from admission to death or discharge. And essentially they looked at 350 patients, 200 of which died in hospital, and they looked at the blood pressure, the oxygen saturations and things in the final few days to say, well, are any of these predictive of the dying process? So therefore, should we be doing any of these? 
once we recognise that somebody is I dying. I see. I did wonder where this was going. Yes. Yeah. So their conclusion was that blood pressure and oxygen saturations decreased in the last days of life, but clinicians and families cannot rely on the vital sign changes alone to rule out impending death. So their findings do not support routine vital sign monitoring in patients who are imminently dying. Which okay. I thought was just a nice reminder for all of us that when we recognise that someone is coming towards the end of their life, not to chart it. Yeah, I think it's one of those things you have to think, what are you going to act on? Yeah. If you find this, if you've decided that someone is in the final phase of their life. Oh, it was quite nice to have that backed up. Yes. I did have something else, uh, very quickly, a study from the PLOS journal. PLOS. PLOS, yeah. July of this year, um, headline figure, longer sleep leads to a lower BMI. I'll put the link for that in the show notes too. I don't need any more excuses to sleep more. <laughs> So, Parkinson's disease, yeah? Parkinson's disease. So, in this episode, we are going to help you to be able to recognise the common presentation of Parkinson's disease um, and also to understand when to refer a patient for further assessment if you think they might have a movement disorder. About why it's important to put medications on time Mm -hmm. and to see that patients with Parkinson's disease may need help from a range of people within the MDT. We want you at the end of this to be able to simply explain a diagnosis of Parkinson's disease to a patient and their relatives. Really important is to understand that Parkinson's disease has both motor and non-motor symptoms. We'll explain them a little bit later. Mm-hmm. And I think finally to understand that the uh, for a patient the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease may be a life-changing event for them. Yeah. So we're going to talk about idiopathic Parkinson's disease. We are not going to talk about some of the other Mm. forms of Parkinsonism or so-called Parkinson Plus syndromes. We're going to focus on how Parkinson's disease may present to you as an MDT member and some of the key things to think about. So we're going to kick off with the diagnosis and the definition, really, rather Mm -hmm. than diagnosis. And I think that's probably best done chronologically, and that's going to take most of the episodes. (laughs) I'm not going to give you my my definition for Parkinson's disease until the last bit of this episode. Can you take the suspense? I'm sure they can. So it was first described by James Parkinson in his essay on the shaking palsy in 1817. Involuntary tremulous motion with lessened muscular power in parts not in action and even when supported with the propensity to bend the trunk forward and to pass from a walking to a running pace the senses and intellects being uninjured. So that's what we thought Parkinson's disease was, as described by Parkinson in 1817. A bit later on, in the mid 1800s, Jean-Martin Charcot of Charcot Marie Tooth Mm -hmm. fame, um, was influential in refining and expanding this early description, and then in disseminating information internationally about Parkinson's disease. And he termed what he called typical and atypical cases and he really importantly noted that bradykinesia was a key feature. And bradykinesia is slowing of movements. Long before rigidity actually develops, patients have significant difficulty performing ordinary activities. This problem relates to another cause. In some of the various patients I've shown you, you can easily recognise how difficult it is for them to do things. Instead, even a cursory exam demonstrates that their problem relates more to slowness in execution of movement rather than to real weakness. In spite of tremor, a patient is still able to do most things, but he performs them with remarkable slowness. Between the thought and the action, there is considerable time lapse. One would think neural activity can only be affected after remarkable effort. I think that nicely describes 
Parkinson's disease or the motor features of Parkinson's disease. So that's the movement-based yeah. features. And those are the things that are a most common presentation for a lot of people with yeah. Parkinson's disease. That's what you're going to spot as the MDT. Yeah, and it's, it's something that... Um, it's easily recognisable. Most people know about that side of the symptoms for Parkinson's disease. And the two most commonly noted problems are slowness of movement, which is called bradykinesia, and that mm-hmm. may present with difficulty walking, um, and tremor. Yeah, and it's quite a classic tremor that people tend to present with, isn't it? So it's yeah. kind of call it a pill-rolling tremor. And referrals, therefore, can come from all sorts of people. Mm. May, doctors may spot this. Um, physiotherapists may spot mm. this, occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, I actually social workers. accidentally had a referral to a social worker to me the other day saying, can you see this gentleman for a needs assessment? His tremor's really bad. He needs help. And I was like, A, come to clinic. B, <laughs> needs no T assessment at home. <laughs> and then realised actually it was to a social worker. So I was like, yes, GP, that's a very good idea. Faxes to the right place, but also consider sending to clinic so yeah. that we can look at the whole thing. And the NICE guidelines say that Parkinson's disease should be suspected in people presenting with tremor, stiffness, slowness, balance problems and or gait disorders, Mm. which is essentially all of the things that Parkinson and Charcot uh, suggested. Yes. So for the actual diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, the brain bank criteria are quite um, good to kind of work through and they're quite good practical thought process for making a diagnosis, aren't they? So there's a few different steps. The first step is to diagnose a Parkinsonian syndrome. So by Parkinsonian syndrome, we mean something that looks like it might be Parkinson's, of which some of those will be idiopathic and some of them will be caused by something else. And that must have a few things. Yeah, so you've got to have bradykinesia. You have to have slowness of movement. And the way that most people would check for that is by getting people to tap their fingers together, a bit like the birdie dance and looking for the amplitude or the size of the movement changing. Mm, And And it gets smaller smaller. and smaller and slower and slower over time. Um, And then you have at least one of the following. You either have rigidity, so stiffness or increased tone in the joints and muscles, or a resting tremor, as you described, like a rolling of a pill between the thumb and and then the wrist moving. Mm, So it's typically in the hand that you see it. Yeah. You may also have postural instability, Mm not caused by a visual vestibular or cerebellar or, or proprioceptive dysfunction. So yeah. technically this would... We talked a bit about this in the Falls episode in the mm. first series. This would pe- technically be a, um, a mid-level gait disorder. Mm. Then the second thing to do once you've said that, yes, this is a Parkinsonian syndrome, is to exclude other conditions, other things it might be. Yeah. And this is really why you refer to a specialist at this point. So the first step is recognising there might be an issue that anybody might pick up. The second is to say... Okay, let's rule out some other things that can cause it. And then the third step is then to look for things that support the diagnosis. And they say three of the following things we're going to say, but Mm -hmm. I think they're useful just to read them out because it tells you a lot about how Parkinson's disease progresses. Yeah. So the first thing is that it's unilateral of onset, so it only starts on one side. Perhaps with a rest tremor, Mm -hmm. it's progressive, so it gets worse over time. Mm -hmm. And even as it gets worse... That one side where it started is nearly always worse than the other side. Mm -hmm. It tends to have a really, really good response to levodopa. So levodopa is the chemical that's deficient in Parkinson's. And so it's the drug that we give people. It's the mainstay of the treatment. There are some others. So when you give someone that thing they're deficient in, the levodopa, 
they get much, much better. Way of giving dopamine. And then if you give too much dopamine, people will get chorea. So they get dyskinesia and too much mm-hmm. movement. Chorea means kind of dancing-like movements of their arms, so they'll be there all over the place. Um, they should respond to the levodopa for about five years or so. Mm-hmm. And then it should run its course over ten or more years. Yeah. So it's a slow disease where people slow up, but it also progresses relatively slowly. Mm. And there's a thing called the Hernaniar staging which is a way of characterising the severity of the disease. Yeah. So stages one through five. So stage one, Joe Is unilateral involvement, usually with only mild or no functional disability at all. And stage two? Is bilateral or midline involvement, so the middle, but not impairing balance. Yep. Stage three? Is bilateral disease with a mild to moderate disability and with some impaired postural reflexes, so your blood pressure dropping, for example, when you stand up, um, but they're physically independent. Yeah, so starting to get a bit more disability with the condition mm-hmm. there. And you go on to stage four. So that's severely disabling disease, but they're still able to walk or stand without assistance. Yeah, and then stage five. Is confinement to bed or a wheelchair unless they're aided to do their other activities. And the way in which people transition through those five stages Mm -hmm. is variable. Um, There was a study done on 695 patients and they looked back through how people sort of went through the timings. And essentially, it's about 80 months, a few years really. About eight. Yeah, about eight years before people get to stage three. Mm-hmm. which is when they're getting bilateral disease with some moderate disability. Mm-hmm. And then it's about every two years from then that then people progress from the mild disability to the more severely disabled mm-hmm. to the being wheelchair-bound, giving a total disease duration of mm. sort of heading up towards mm. the high numbers of teens in years. And then they did a regression analysis and revealed that having an older age at diagnosis, having PD for longer and having a higher rating scale or worse motor symptoms at the start were associated with a faster progression. Mm. So the higher up you were already, the quicker it went, which which I think makes sense. It takes yeah. a while to get to stage two and or stage three and then three, four and five are much, much faster. Mm. And regression analysis is when you go back and look at things and try and work out uh, what might be affecting it. So kind of more simply looking at those stages, you could break it down into the kind of the diagnostic phase, then the kind of maintenance phase, then a more complex phase, and then a palliative phase. That's important to recognise when people are entering that palliative phase, I think for obvious reasons. And some people would suggest that that palliative phase in Parkinson's disease actually runs through almost from the diagnosis Mm. all the way through bit like heart failure and COPD and more and more palliative care teams are getting involved in these non-cancer diagnoses yeah. these days. There's also the BRAC staging. B-R-A-A-K. Yeah, which we thought we would just mention really because it's interesting because it hints at the idea that Parkinson's disease is not just a condition that affects one part of the brain. So in the BRAC hypothesis, there is something that starts the process, the neurodegenerate process, maybe in the gut, maybe through the olfactory uh, region into the the olfactory bulb, uh, which is at the back of the nose. So people then develop symptoms of loss of sense of smell Mm. or intermittent constipation earlier on in their life. So constipation first, then loss of sense of smell. And then as time goes on, then um, maybe some sleep problems as the brain stem is getting involved. 
And then as the disease progresses up to the midbrain, you get the movement problems that we see. And then eventually the disease progresses higher up. And then you can develop cognitive impairment and dementia. Mm. And he suggests there's, there's this sort of sequential process um, that's not just the movement. So that was the nerd alert. We're now going to talk about exactly how the basal ganglia works. We are indeed. So the basal ganglia normally exert a constant inhibitory influence on lots of motor systems in the brain. So they are stopping you from moving at inappropriate times. Yeah. It's, it's a lot complicated. more complicated than that, but that's basically but what's happening. Inhibitory, yes, not, not they the excitatory. Usually yeah. stop you doing things. So when a decision has been made by one of the higher brain centres uh, to perform a particular action, that inhibition is reduced for that motor system. So when I think I want to move my right hand, yep. the inhibition stopping me moving my right hand is taken away. So it's like the gate opens. The gate opens. So yes. that you can put your hand through the gate. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Dopamine is the neurotransmitter that facilitates that release of inhibition. So it's the thing that opens the gate. So high levels of dopamine function tend to promote motor activity. That's why if you give too much dopamine, people have too much movement. Yes. So on the flip side, low levels of dopamine function, like occur in Parkinson's disease, demand a lot greater exertions of effort for any given movement. Yeah. So in Parkinson's there is an accumulation of a protein called alpha-synuclein, which leads to cell death, and that's particularly in the basal ganglia and the substantia nigra for the movement symptoms. So, the net effect of dopamine depletion is called hypokinesia. So, kinesia means movement, so lessening of movement, and an overall reduction in motor output, for example, when walking. Yeah, and so all of the treatments for Parkinson's disease aim to provide more dopamine in one way or the other. Mm Mm-hmm. So when a patient has the drugs, they can move around better. And as the drugs wear off, they can't. Now, generally, they work on a dose-to-dose basis. So when the medicine wears off, it's not working at all. So the timing of drugs is really important. Yes. Patients will know when they take their drugs. Mm-hmm. And in the it's best not in to an fiddle. acute hospital admission, it's definitely best not to fiddle. And this is that time that you get the doctor to take out their pen, or if you're the doctor, you take out your pen and you cross out all of those pre-filled in numbers and you write the exact time that that person has them and then you tell the nurse. The The drug rounds have to happen at a different time. Exactly. If the patient has their drugs at 6.45, 8.50 and 1.15, then that's when they need to have them. Mm. And we have to work around our sort of self-imposed drug round time. There will be a group of patients who will be able to take this themselves and that might be the best way for those people to do it. But for those who can't, it's really, really important to bear that in mind. And there's some really good literature on that called the Get It On Time campaign from Parkinson's UK. We'll put a link for that in the show notes. Mm -hmm. You can find the show notes on the website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcast.org.uk. It is. And when they come into hospital, they are likely to have lost function, as lots of people have, and that's why they end up there. In hospital, as well as in the community, um, if someone loses their swallow for whatever reason, um, don't just do nothing. You need to ask for help urgently for to get that Parkinson's meds in another form. And your pharmacist will be able to help you whether you're in the community or in an acute hospital. But you absolutely need to do that. And if you don't know how to do that, just ask someone that does, which might be um, one of the senior doctors or the pharmacist will usually know what to do and you'll need to give it to them a different way. But there are ways around all of the medications. So don't just think, oh, they can't swallow, I can't do this. Tell someone and find a solution. So that's the motor symptoms. 
That's the slowness of movement, the tremor and the stiffness. It's not all about movement, though. No. And over the last 30 years, there's been a much greater appreciation that Parkinson's disease has what we call non-motor or non-movement related symptoms. And that's where you get changes elsewhere in the brain or the dopaminergic system. Mm-hmm. Now, there's loads of these, isn't there? Yeah. So I think we've, we've kind of grouped them together in yes. into little groups. There kind of four groups for you to kind of think about. So we'll just tell you what those are now. So that's mental health problems is one. Yep. Sleep disturbance is another. Falls and autonomic disturbance. Yep. So in the mental health problems, we should say we're not going to go into huge detail with these, just sort of say they're, they're there. Yeah. There will be a whole episode on them yeah. in the miniseries. So, so mental health problems. Uh, so depression is quite a big one, both as part of the disease process sometimes, but also um, as a consequence of having a diagnosis yep. and limitation in what people are able to do. People may have psychotic symptoms. Yeah. And please don't use typical antipsychotic drugs like haloperidol and such like. They will um, make things, they much, will make much, things worse. much, much worse. So as well as um, sometimes developing psychotic symptoms as part of the disease process, you can sometimes see those features coming if people are developing a delirium or they're over-medicated. So something to bear in mind if that's something that's starting to brew. The third is dementia. Which tends to happen quite a long time after the initial diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, but as part of the same process. Yes. Second group is sleep disturbance. Now, we might do a whole episode on this. I think we're going to do a whole episode on this in Series 5. So let us know what you'd like us to include in a sleep episode. Absolutely. But sleep in Parkinson's disease. It's a whole spectrum of things, Mm. isn't it? Lots of different things. So restless leg syndrome is something that they're particularly affected by. So that's a relatively common problem, isn't it? That's where people feel the overwhelming urge to move your legs and can't really do anything about it until you move your legs and then that urge goes away and then a little while later that will build back up yeah. and becomes almost irresistible and you have to move your legs yeah, yeah. the next is REM sleep behavior disorder and REM stands for rapid eye movement and it's a phase of sleep and it's the phase of sleep in which you dream yeah. um, but in this disorder people tend to act out their dreams quite physically yeah so in REM sleep you are in in humans in REM sleep. You are paralysed. The only mm. bit of you that can move is your eyes, and they flip from side to side. Mm. In dogs, dogs can move in REM sleep, which you know because when you see a dog dream, you can see all oh, the paws and running. things move around. You see them running. Whereas in REM sleep behaviour disorder, patients are not paralysed in their sleep. So everything that you do in your sleep, you do in real life. So if you're swimming, you'll be doing that in the middle of the bed. Mm. Uh, also, you can get daytime hypersomnolence in Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease. And people can be really, really quite sleepy during the day. And if that's that's the case, then you just need to think about driving and any occupational hazards and to try and adjust their medication because you may well be able to make that a bit better with medication. Mm. And the other problem people tend to get related to sleep is nocturnal akinesia, which is when their medications stop working and people go into what they call an off phase. Mm. Um, and then turning over in bed can be difficult at night. Mm. So... Akinesia means an absence of movement. Falls, I don't think we're going to cover here too much because there are just so many different reasons. And again, this is something that we'll probably go into in a lot more detail in another episode. You have all of the usual reasons that someone might fall, plus postural instability, plus freezing or the additional movements. So many different factors that would would come into this. It's just something to be aware of, that they are quite high falls risk in general. does lead nicely onto the fourth section. Mm-hmm. which is autonomic disturbance. Yes. So the commonest one that we always think about there is 
postural hypotension, isn't it? But there are lots of others that can be associated. If you see them early on in the disease, it makes you doubt whether this is an idiopathic Parkinson's disease, but can happen as part of the normal disease process. So some of those autonomic things may present yeah. with stuff like urinary dysfunction, yeah. so overactive bladder or mm. atonic bladders. Mm. Swallowing trouble? Yeah, dysphagia. Um, constipation is something we see a lot in Parkinson's disease patients and can quite often predate their presentation yep. with the motor symptoms. They may have erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. They may have excessive sweating. Yes, and sialuria, which yeah. is excessive salivation. Yes. Interestingly, though, in Parkinson's disease, people drool, but the volume of saliva is not that much greater. It's down to a, a subtle change in neck position. That okay. The head is just forward and the saliva comes to the front of the mouth, not the back. Okay. And is it to do with the slowing of swallowing as well? Uh, I suspect so, mm. yes. And the uh, bacteria that live within the mouth change with people with Parkinson's disease. They have different bacteria in the mouth uh, than, than people without. Well, we Everything microbiome. is because of yeah. the microbiome. So we can see that patients with Parkinson's disease have movement and non-movement related yes. symptoms. Um, and that requires a multi-professional team yeah, to look after them, which is why... It's an MDT episode. Yeah. So what we thought would be really useful is to go through each member of the multidisciplinary team that might be involved with someone with Parkinson's disease and just briefly think about how they're involved in their care. Mm. So the first is specialist nurses. Yep. So people with Parkinson's disease should have regular access to a specialist nurse for clinical monitoring and medication adjustment as a continuing point of contact so that they can do home visits when needed they can give them information about the clinical and social matters and the Parkinson's disease nurse specialist can do an awful lot of that. Mm. Physiotherapy is is a big one isn't it? Yeah. And that should be available for people with Parkinson's disease and particularly giving consideration to things like gait re-education to help with improving their balance and flexibility, um, enhancement of their aerobic capacity um, improvement of initiating movements, um, improvement of functional independence, so particularly looking at their mobility and their activities of daily living, and also advice about safety in the home environment. Yep. And there's a thing called the Alexander Technique, mm-hmm. which is a, a complementary therapy, and that may benefit uh, some people with Parkinson's disease by helping them to make lifestyle adjustments that alter the physical nature of the condition mm-hmm. and maybe their attitudes to that as well. Yeah. So next is occupational therapy. Yep. So occupational therapy should be available for people with Parkinson's disease, particularly thinking about maintaining their work and family Mm. roles and their leisure activities. And then as the disease progresses a little bit, thinking about maintaining safe mobility and transfers Mm. uh, from beds to chairs and improving uh, personal care activities, such as helping people eat and drink and wash and dress. And there's a number of adaptations that you can uh, mm-hmm. get for that. Mm. And then we have as one of our early MDTs as the... I was just thinking that, and I couldn't remember if we actually did, but we did, didn't we? We, we definitely talked about it if we didn't. Yes. The, um, so the fork. The fork that, that, that adjusts itself for your tremor, so it counteracts your tremor so that you can eat smoothly. Yeah, like noise-cancelling headphones, but yes, tremor-cancelling but forks. forks. Yes. Occupational therapists may also perform cognitive assessments and environmental um, assessments to improve mm. safety and motor function at home. Yeah. 
And speech and language therapy is quite an important one for lots of people with Parkinson's as well, for several different reasons, not just management of poor swallowing, um, which tends to happen in the later stages, to minimise risks of aspiration, finding safe consistencies, having discussions about feeding plans in the longer term, but also to do with communication. So improving uh, their vocal loudness and their pitch range. Um, so there's a programme called the Lee Silverman Voice Treatment. Yeah, it's a specific, um, requires specific training, but it's a specific mm-hmm. set of exercises for people with Parkinson's disease to increase the volume of their voice. They can teach strategies to optimise speech intelligibility, so how people understand them, and ensuring that they've got an effective means of communication um, and maintaining that throughout the course of their disease, and that might use assistive technologies or communication boards and things like that. And then social workers, um, their involvement should be under the principles of the CARE Act, and people are entitled to appropriate support from social care services. And uh, in particular, I find that the charitable sector, particularly Parkinson's UK, I have to say, are really helpful in that mm. regard. And the Parkinson's UK website is brilliant. It has so much really useful information. I use their leaflets in my movement disorder clinic all the time. And mm. it's, it's fantastic. Um has got a lot of information about medications as well and, and, and dose adjustments for, for people working in that area. And there was a, a study in the, in the BMJ Open Journal last year showing that maximising social care delivery for people with Parkinson's disease has an impact on the health and well-being Um, and there are both long and short-term benefits that may result in uh, prevented events like admissions Mm -hmm. to hospital and such like um, Which you'd expect, wouldn't yeah, you? Yeah, I think so. As with any disease process. But I think it's important to think about that yeah. early, isn't it? Yeah. But the article also says that as health professionals, we should be instrumental in signposting people towards the services. Yeah. So in conclusion, yeah. you said you were going to end this with end your with personal the definition. definition. Yes. Well, this is not quite my personal <laughs> definition, but um, I think the, I think what, we, what we've seen is that over the last 30 years, the recognition of the non-motor symptoms has changed the way we think about Parkinson's mm-hmm. disease. It's no longer just a problem of movement and, and neurology. So I think now the, the common taught idea is that Parkinson's disease is a neuropsychiatric condition with motor complications that needs a multi-professional management approach. Absolutely. I think it's quite nice. Yeah. The MDT Podcast. So, now it's that time for the MD teaser. So I'll catch titled MDT Item Guessing Game. And this week, Joe, I think it's my turn to go first. Okay. Set up the timer. Right, so this clue again came from Pam. Pam I'll our, do the timer. Of our PAs. And <laughs> this is not easy. Okay. I'm ready. Are you ready? Good, right. Let's go. Okay. Now, if it's that difficult, are we going to set ourselves a time limit of when we'll just stop? No, we'll get there. We'll get there. (laughs) So just bear with me for one moment. I just need to read the words that I'm not allowed to use. Okay. All right, go. So this is a bit like a bandage, but it goes around the area between your chest and your pelvis. Your chest and your pelvis. And you sort of put it on, and it's it's got... Oh, it's I like a say. truss, like an abdominal truss. Yes, but it's not that. A you use it when compression. people have problems when they stand up. They might feel faint when they stand up. And we've just talked about the problem in this non-motor yeah. symptoms. So, 
I don't know what the name of it is, but is it like something to increase your blood pressure by? Yes, yes. By yeah, I don't know what it's yeah. called. And and so, what's the word? It's like if you had a compression, a bale of straw. What do you do that? A bale of straw? You, <laughs> I have no you idea. don't compress a bale of straw. No. <laughs> <laughs> you string up a bale of straw. Yeah, there's another word that begins with a B. Bale? It's a bale of hay. <laughs> Almost, yes. Um, um, uh, I don't know. Okay. As in, can you give me more clues? Yeah. Um, so the first word, it's got two words. The first word is that bit of the body that's here. Abdominal. Yes. And then the second word is a word that's to to call sort of tied Belt. up. And well, I guess I can say it's not bound. Binding, abdominal binding. Yes. Okay. Slowest yet, one minute twenty six <coughs> seconds. It was difficult. So that I wasn't was allowed really to say difficult. binder, abdominal, blood pressure, hypertension, postural, pressure, elastic, velcro, fastening, or cardiac. She went niche with that. Ready? Yes. Go. This is a piece of equipment that you would use for someone who has difficulty getting out of bed and needs to get... uh, You can use it to get someone into another bed. Is it a hoist? No. Standing hoist? It's thinner. Is it a... Ah, is it a um, pallet slide? No, what's it called? Um, Slide, sliding thing. It's almost, yes. I'm going to... Pat slide. uh, It's a specific type of sliding... Slide sheet. Material, yes. 32 seconds. So, I was not allowed to say plastic sheet, patient-specific, bed mobility, manual handling, bed-based, blue. There must be blue in your trust. They're yellow in mine. Well, the last one I saw was. Uh, double sheeting, repositioning, one-sided or variable sizes. Ah. So, we also have an MD teaser for you, and we're going to hand over to Tappy, who will give you the clue. Yes. The MD teaser sound was guessed super quickly this time around. So congratulations to Janet Thomas, who guessed it first. It was hand washing. An MDT mug is winging its way to you. So get your guesses in fast this time, guys. It's heating up here. Here is the new MDTzer sound. So what do you think it is? Okay. Let us know your guesses. We are at Twitter. <laughs> At MDT underscore podcast use, on the Twitter. Yes, use the hashtag MDTeaser. <laughs> yes. Or Facebook, which is facebook.com forward slash MDT podcast. And again, you can put the hashtag in there. Yes, or if you want to quietly ask us if you've got the right thing, you can email us and you can find our email address at the top right hand corner of our website, which is www.thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. Yeah, and we have a MDT mug for the first person to get the clue correct. Mm-hmm. And don't forget about our journal club on this episode next week. And also on the website, don't forget that all of the show notes are there with all of the references for everything we talk about. Mm-hmm. And, and the... they are mapped to a whole range of postgraduate curriculums. So that you can use them for your CPD. There's a free CPD form that you can log your listening as well. Yeah. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. 
The MDT Podcast is a Hearing Aid Podcast's Big Things Media Production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. Thank you.